Please take your Bibles, and as we often ask you, open them, have them open before you in whatever form you have them, and open to, if you're using the Pew Bibles, page 1191, I believe is where you'll find our text this morning from Hebrews chapter 7, page 1191. We'll begin with this question. I hope you'll see in a moment how it relates to what we'll be studying. Are you a Ford person, a Chevy person, or perhaps a Dodge person? I've admitted to several people uh, with whom I've discussed car preferences that I am forever biased against Fords. Not the Fords who might be here or other places, but the car, yes. And that's simply because of my father's influence upon me. When we were being raised, he always had Chevys. And he says Ford stands for Fix on Road Daily. So that was his experience in the 1960s and 70s. And yet, in 1998, the Ford Motor Company came up with a new slogan that reflected a change and an attempt to counter years of being misunderstood. You may remember that slogan. It's as old as 1998, built to last. It represented a statement that the automaker wanted to communicate, building on the current motto that they had at that time, Ford Tough, which relates mostly to their trucks. Built to last seeks to face a head-on or a head-on what is still the most common experiences that we as consumers have with regard to durable goods. That is those goods that we purchase and use every day. Think of smartphones, think of appliances around your home, think of computers, think even, yes, of cars. The experience we have is quite frustrating because the experience is based on a principle called planned obsolescence, which the Oxford Dictionary defines this way. It is a policy of producing consumer goods that rapidly become obsolete and so require replacing, achieved by frequent changes in design, termination of the supply of spare parts, and the use of non-durable materials. In other words, not built to last, but built ultimately to fail or to come to an end. Now, all of us have felt this in our lives, and we might even say that as we live from day to day, we realize that our very bodies are not built to last. They're not Ford tough. They're going to fail us. And many of us have prayer requests in the bulletin that are the evidence of that very thing. Now, to be sure, this does not mean that there's any fault in the maker or designer, God himself who has made us. It is because of sin that these things are true and not because God is somehow like a modern day manufacturer who builds things with a sort of built in planned obsolescence. It is because of sin that we suffer all that we suffer daily in our lives. Well, this principle of planned obsolescence is actually, I believe, very helpful for us to know and to understand as we come to our text this morning in Hebrews 7. In God's sovereign plan, the Old Testament priesthood, Aaron, his sons after him, was never intended to last forever. Built into it were the very principles that tell us that it was temporary and it was passing away. That was true for the moment Aaron was called to be a high priest and his sons after him. 
and all the priests that served. Their very service, their very lives, everything about them spoke of planned obsolescence. It would all come to an end one day. It all must come to an end and give way to someone else, not from Aaron's line, but from the line of Melchizedek, a man who would come in the fullness of time, who would be uniquely the God-man, and who would be sufficient and our final high priest, always living, even now, to make intercession for us. And so I'd like to read these verses. Our text really is verse 25 of this chapter, but if you would stand I'm going to read in our hearing, verse 11 through verse 28. As you give your attention to it, please remember that what I read is the very word of God. Now, if perfection, verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all flesh, as we are well aware, is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this word. It does stand forever, even as our faithful high priests is before you forever interceding for us. Thank you for him, for his ministry, and now bless us as we seek to understand even a little more than we have understood before we came and rejoice in this one who is our priest forever. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is so much easier in the book of Hebrews to begin in the beginning and work your way to chapter 7. Because the book of Hebrews is a very carefully crafted argument by the writer, unnamed to us. People have their opinions, you know mine, but it's an unnamed apostle, one who was called by God to be the author of this letter. And it is a very carefully laid out argument with the great conclusion that goes like this. Jesus simply is better. He's better than anything. Seems simple to us. It's one of those Sunday school answers, but it is the argument of the book of Hebrews. In the early chapters, the apostle shows us clearly that Jesus is better than the angels. For God never said to the angels the words of Psalm 110 that was read earlier. He never spoke those words to any of the angels. That is a critically important psalm in our text this morning. Nor did he ever subject the world to angels, but it was to the son who was made a little lower than the angels in his humiliation coming in our flesh that he has crowned with glory and honor and raised to the highest position and given all authority to him. None of that was given or spoken of about angels. It was fitting the conclusion of that section says that he took on our humanity. He took on our flesh, our nature, yet without sin, so that he could be a faithful and merciful high priest, according to Hebrews 2. And then the second part of the argument is in chapters 3 and 4. And we're told there that Jesus is also greater or better than Moses who the author admits was faithful in all of God's house as a servant being himself part of the house. But Jesus, the writer says, is faithful over God's house. He is above God's house. He is ruler over God's house. We are, he says, God's house. He rules over us as king. And therefore, Moses faithful in the house. Jesus better than Moses faithful over the house as a son. Moses led the people out of Egypt, out of bondage to the Egyptians, picture of the bondage that we have to sin. But the people who heard Moses, who heard God himself speak through Moses, rebelled. And the writer says they did not enter God's rest that he had promised them. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's better than Moses in that he alone is able to lead his people out of the bondage to sin, slavery to sin, and into the rest that is promised to us in heaven itself. Jesus is faithful, and he is better than Moses. The third great argument, of course, is the longest argument of the book of Hebrews. It consists of chapters 4 at the very end through the middle part of chapter 10. And in the midst of that whole argument is where our verse is found. It's found in the midst of the argument that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. And because of that, our text is really a sort of therefore statement, right? 
The argument is made and then the application because of everything I said. Look again at verse 25. Consequently, because of everything that I've spoken from chapter 4 all the way through, even beyond this text to chapter 10, because of all of this, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them as our faithful high priest. And so when I say it's a lot easier to start in chapter one, as we did back in 2004, we worked our way all the way through the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's a little more difficult because there's so much here in this argument. Let me give you as best as I can the highlights, the points to understand before we look closely at our text. The first is, of course, to understand who this priest Melchizedek is. We know who he is because Pastor Fisher just led us through a study of the Old Testament fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's Melchizedek who enters onto the scene rather suddenly and without any introduction and leaves just as quickly without any goodbyes in the book of Genesis. And this Melchizedek, by his own name, is called a king of righteousness. He is also a priest of Salem or a prince of peace or a king of peace. And the text tells us, if you look back to chapter 7 of uh, Hebrews, again, just a few verses before where we are, you'll see in verse 3 a very important statement that helps us understand and answer the question, which people differ with, and it's okay that we differ. But there are people who believe that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate form of Christ, that he was an appearance of the Son of God. But I think verse 3 is the defining verse to describe or to get us to the answer of who he was. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Melchizedek is Melchizedek. He was a man who lived in that time of Abraham when he returned from the battle against the armies that he was fighting and claimed a great victory. Melchizedek, Melchizedek came out to meet him. Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, indicating that he was greater than Abraham. And so there's a lot there that you might say, well, we know nothing about him. We have no genealogy. We have no beginning and end. And that's the argument that the book of Hebrews makes. Therefore, he must be God. Well, he's not. He's a man. But the uniqueness is he's a man that serves a purpose in God's overall sovereign plan of redemption. He becomes a picture in that very sudden appearance and disappearance He resembles the Son of God in that the Son of God is King of Righteousness, King of Peace. He is all of those things. But he's a resemblance to Melchizedek. He looks like him. In that passage, uh, it's in Genesis. We've noted this before when we studied Genesis years ago that the, the unique thing about Melchizedek is he appears in a book that is centered upon genealogies. And he doesn't have one, no father, no mother, as the text tells us. He just appears, seems to have no beginning and no end. Well, that's for a purpose. That's why God introduced him, not to give us a pre-incarnate picture or form of Jesus Christ or a person of Christ, but rather in a man and in what he represented in God's providence, it is a picture ultimately of what Jesus would be for us as he appears now for us as our faithful high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The argument of Hebrews in 4 through 10 is to show us that there is a built-in obsolescence in the Old Testament priesthood. 
There's an impermanence there and an imperfection in that priesthood. Now, again, it's not that God is at fault for creating or establishing or commanding something that is less than perfect. It was perfect as God had designed it, but it was never meant to be permanent. And that's the point Paul makes in other writings. It was never meant to be permanent. And so when you look at the priesthood so central to the life of the covenant community under the Old Testament, the priest being the very means by which the people would have access to God and God would have access to them through the ministry of the priest, the sacrificial system, the prayers offered by the priest, all of those things, all through Aaron and all down through his line, the tribe of Levi. It was all good. It was all to serve a great purpose. But it was never to be the priesthood from which the Messiah would come. And and the carefully argued argument in these verses tells us why. It's because of impermanence. It's because of imperfection that was sort of part and parcel of that priesthood with respect to the ability that it had to truly save anyone. And it couldn't. It was something that pointed forward, looked forward to someone who would come, not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, of which Moses says nothing about the priesthood. Because this priest was of a different order, a different character. And so God, in his wisdom, goes back to this very strange incident in Genesis and says, that's what my son is like, a priest who is forever, who has no beginning and no end, who is perfect, if you will, of whom there are no other priests noted in the scriptures. This one, this son of whom the Lord speaks through Hebrews is like that. And he's like that because God said he was. That's the reference here that we read in uh, chapter seven in the verses preceding. It was all by an oath. You see, the priesthood of the Old Testament was not by oath. No one took an oath to the priesthood. No one was chosen and took an oath. God didn't make an oath. He chose a tribe, Aaron, the tribe of Levi. And forever, as long as that tribe would live, and we know it wasn't to be permanent, but for as long as that tribe would exist, it would be the son of the high priest, one of the sons, who would take over. It was all by line By genetics, if you will, were you of the tribe of Levi? Were you a son of the high priest? And you were qualified to be a high priest. But with Jesus, it's different. God said, you are a priest by oath. God has taken an oath. Chapter 6 references an oath as well with regard to the promises made to Abraham. God has promised. It's sure. It is certain because God has sworn an oath The same is true with respect to Jesus. He is a better high priest because he is established by the oath of God who cannot lie. And he makes a promise and he says, this one will be a priest forever after the order or the likeness of Melchizedek and not of Aaron or of the tribe of Levi. And so when we get to the verse that we're looking at, the sort of conclusion of this section, which really does take into account what follows as well. You have this in verse 22, this this oath that God has made and he will not change his mind makes Jesus then a guarantor 
of a better covenant. In comparison with the Old Testament and the Mosaic order, this is a better covenant. He's going to go on to tell why that is, that it is a better covenant. And this Jesus being a priest after Melchizedek is one who administers a better covenant. But here he simply makes the point that because of all of this proceeding in chapters 4 through 7, this all makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. You have an anchor earlier, he says, behind the veil, Jesus, the Son of God. That anchor is a picture of our certainty, our surety. This, this term here, this guarantor, is, is a term that talks about a surety. It's only used here in the New Testament. And it means someone who stands as a guarantor or a surety for those whom he represents. And that's what Jesus is for all of those who love him, for all of those using the language of verse 25, who draw near to God through him. And so you see where he goes then. He gives a summary statement in verse 23 and 24. The former priests, that is of the Levitical priesthood, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's important to point out by death or retirement. They retired at 50. And so by death or retirement, they were prevented from continuing on. A new one had to, to come on the scene. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. A never-ending priesthood which means a never-ending intercession for those who come to God through him. Three things to note as we look at this text, and just to take away three things that are important for us to see in this text. Notice what he says then in verse 25. Having all of that in the background, he says this, Therefore, because of all of this, and hopefully you were able to follow with me as we summarize that, he uniquely then is able to save to the utter most completely to the end. These are some translations that differ. You might think of verses like uh, Philippians 1 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion unto the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. How will he do that? Because we have a high priest who is able now to save to the uttermost. He will not die. He's been raised, as the previous verses says, with the power, verse 16, of an indestructible life, cannot ever be destroyed. He ever lives to make intercession for us, which makes him able then to save to the uttermost, to the farthest extent of our imaginations. One writer says, whether it be distance or sin or rebellion, chaos or darkness, anything that we can imagine, time itself, this high priest is able to save to the uttermost, to the fullest extent, to the deepest valley, to the furthest away, he is able to save to the uttermost. What the law could not do, what the priests could not do in all of their sacrifices, Jesus is able to do to truly save to the uttermost. Again, this doesn't mean that the law was bad. Paul makes that argument in Romans and Galatians. The law was given, remember Galatians, as a teacher, a tutor, to show us our sin and to do what? To drive us 
to Christ. Why do we need to be driven to Christ? Because only Christ is able to save to the uttermost. There is no one else who is able to save. Those priests could not. But this priest, by oath of the order of Melchizedek, because he has the power of an indestructible life and does not die, he is able to save to the uttermost. Secondly, and we've already noted it, it all goes together, but it's important to break it down. He always lives. He's able to save to the uttermost. He always lives. You see that at the end of the verse or near the end, since he always lives. That indestructible life is, I think, ultimately a reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he conquered death as God by the spirit, raised him from the dead and established him in our flesh and humanity. Remember that. It's important to remember that he has taken our nature and our flesh into heaven with him. That's a picture of who he helps here. He still helps and is able to help and save to the uttermost those who he has been made like. Human beings created in the image of God. He has taken that with an indestructible life into heaven so that he always lives. The contrast is obvious. The priests of the Old Testament simply died. That's the point he's making. They died. They did not, could not live forever. They possessed life according to God's purpose and plan, but they eventually died. This priest, being after the order of Melchizedek, given by an oath sworn by God, always, always lives. And then add this. That's the last part of the verse, and it's clear. He always lives to do what? You wonder what Jesus is doing in heaven. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. You wonder what he's doing? He's living always with an indestructible life to make intercession for you and for me if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is what a high priest did. This was the glory of his ministry and his work. He stood before God. And behind him, as it were, were the people. And when he came and spoke, he spoke not merely for himself, though this text tells us he had to offer first sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner. But when he came to offer for the people, he spoke as one man for the people. What a glorious ministry the high priest had. That's why he was taken so seriously. He offered sacrifices for their sins. He was the mediator between a holy God and sinful men. He offered the sacrifices. He prayed prayers for the people. When we as elders pray for you as we meet on our meetings, when we lead in prayer on Sunday mornings, it's a very similar thing. We're acting, as it were, in the role of that sort of intercessor, that mediator, but not in ourselves. We go to the one who intercedes always, who always lives and makes intercession for you. That's what he's doing right now. He's making intercession for you and for me before the throne of his father. The book of Romans speaks of it in Romans chapter 8. In fact, in Romans 8, there are two wonderful blessings related to this idea of prayer. Two blessings that God has given to us. If you feel weak in your prayer life, if you are discouraged in how often and how faithful you are in prayer, 
then these two blessings in Romans 8 are such a great encouragement. In verse 26 and following, he tells us, and I won't read it now, but he tells us of how the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know, he says, how to pray. So there's the first blessing, that God has given us his Spirit. He's put that Spirit within us, and Commentators differ. Is it the spirit who is groaning groans that are unutterable? Is it us that are groaning? The spirit interprets it. In either case, I think the picture is clear. It's the spirit who helps us to pray, assists us in our prayer. But he goes on to say there's another blessing a little later in Romans 8. You know, these verses, they were read. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised with the power of an indestructible life, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's his picture, a picture of a priest interceding endlessly, ceaselessly, because he always lives for you and for me. And this priesthood has no built-in obsolescence. There is no design in this priesthood that will say that one day his ministry at the Father's right hand will end for you. Or for me, it goes on forever. That's the picture of Hebrews chapter 7. That's the picture of this verse. It's a picture of one who is faithful in all that he does on behalf of all of those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ. He ceaselessly makes intercession for us. Three things to note as we close, just thoughts to take with you to be encouraged. First of all, notice that in this passage, and again, you have to see the whole argument of Hebrews, but you have here really power now joined to compassion. What do I mean by that? The writer of Hebrews earlier in chapter two and chapter four spoke of Jesus as our compassionate high priest. And the encouragement there is that we have one who is before the father who knows our infirmities. He knows your weakness, brother and sister. Whatever it is you're struggling with, he didn't have to fall into sin in order to say that he is able to understand your weakness. He was without sin, but he faced temptation in a way that you and I will never face it because, frankly, we just give in too early and too quickly. But Jesus endured temptation And he was perfect in all that he did. And that makes him to be a priest who is full of compassion for us. Now, recently we talked about God's compassion. What is compassion? It's one who moves towards pain and hurt and sorrow. That's what compassion is. And when you think of our Savior, think of him that way. When you're struggling in a pain and sorrow and disappointment and heartache and struggle and and all the things that we struggle with in this life, you know and I know that we have a Savior whose very nature is to move through and to, or I should say, to that and into that. 
It actually, as one writer said in the sermon that uh, a few weeks ago, it actually draws him to us. That's an amazing thought that our sorrows and our pain and our struggles actually draw Jesus to us because he delights to meet those needs that we have. Well, here we have that compassion joined with limitless power. John Owen in his commentary on Hebrews 7 says it was no easy thing to take away sin, to subdue Satan to fulfill the law, to make peace with God, to procure pardon, to purchase grace and glory with all other things great and glorious that belong to this salvation. It was not an easy thing, but he did it. Why? Because he was raised with indestructible power and there is nothing that God is unable to do. He is able to save. John Murray said, as quoted by another writer, he possesses omnipotent compassion. Omnipotent, all-powerful compassion. It's great when someone feels your pain. We all appreciate that, but we all know that among our peers and our fellow travelers and pilgrims in this life, there is no one who possesses power enough to satisfy all that we hurt. No one, the resources, the ability, the strength, no one has that except Jesus. He possesses omnipotent compassion. So we see power joined to compassion. Secondly, we see faithfulness joined to indestructible life. His faithfulness is our high priest over all of God's house and all that he has done for our salvation is now joined to this indestructible life. He will never die. He always lives. And so there's no end to his faithfulness. There's no end to everything that he has promised. Everything he spoke will come to pass. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he now has a faithfulness to everything he promised. Joined now to an indestructible life that will never be taken away. And then finally, we have this appointment by an oath joined to intercession, appointed by the Father, called and set apart, chosen by the Father, Peter says, from before the foundations of the world to be our Savior and High Priest. And he made an oath. And God does not lie. He has a faithful ministry then as our high priest interceding always for us. Can you see how uniquely qualified to be our savior Jesus is? How uniquely qualified to be our high priest. He bears our flesh in heaven now before the father. And he constantly, ceaselessly, endlessly, forever makes intercession for all of those who will draw near to God. Through him. There's a warning in those verses, right? There's sort of a, a separation, isn't there? Is this true of Jesus for everyone without distinction? No. It's not true of anyone who rejects him, who denies him, that he is indeed the Son of God and the faithful high priest whom God himself has appointed. This ministry, this incredible ministry of Jesus as our high priest, ceaseless as it is, is not for those who will not draw near to him, who reject him instead and who do not believe. 
Instead, for you, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never come to him, acknowledged your sin, seen him as your savior, then the call is for you to come, to believe the gospel, to trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you are numbered among those, as God is pleased to work in your heart, who draw near to him, who can draw near to him, through him, that is Jesus That is what the gospel commands of all who hear my voice and the voice of the one who has spoken in the fullness of time. This Jesus is alone, a savior and high priest able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through Christ. Well, let me tell you the two reasons as we close why I wanted to preach on this text this morning. The first is pretty evident. We're here at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see here the ministry and picture of what Jesus has done as our high priest, who later in Hebrews, he's going to talk about how he entered the most holy place in heaven, of which those things on earth with but a shadow and a picture of. He says he entered with his own blood once for all into the presence of God, and he offered once for all that blood for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. Here at the table, we see the ministry of our high priest in heaven now before the Father on our behalf. However, be clear, unlike what Roman Catholic theology teaches us, we are not coming to offer again a new sacrifice to God the very body and blood of our Savior as they teach and believe. This this is not a mass where Jesus is sacrificed again, which really follows more the pattern of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, than it does the promises and the pattern of the New Testament, where the priest would come day after day after day and over and over again offer the blood of the sacrifice to God. That is not what we come to. We come to one who once for all, look at the end of Romans 7, who once for all, he says, for those people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, once for all, we come, as the Apostle Paul tells us, to a table in remembrance of him, looking back to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that God was pleased to accept, for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. And as we remember him, we feed upon him spiritually by faith, and we receive the benefits of his finished work on our behalf and on behalf of all of those who would draw near to God through him. But there's a second reason that I wanted to preach this text because it serves for me as an introduction to a new series that we're going to begin in the coming weeks. If Jesus is presently and forever interceding for me at the right hand of the Father, what is he praying? John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, put it this way. And yet again at another time while he was in the world, he gave us the best estimate and representation of his present intercession that we are able to comprehend. And this was his prayer in John 17. For therein his confidence in God, his union in and with him, the declaration of his will and desires are all expressed in such a manner as to give us the best understanding of what he is presently doing now in heaven in his intercession. 
In the weeks to come, Lord willing, we'll take a look and study very closely the words of our Savior in John 17. It's the only place we can properly say it is the Lord's prayer because it's his prayer. And what does he pray for? As we study, we'll find out, and I hope and pray, to our great encouragement and our assurance of salvation, because that is why that prayer is there. It is to assure us as believers that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us, even in these moments this morning, a glimpse into the ministry of our faithful high priest, one who comes and is after the order of Melchizedek by an oath sworn by God that he would be a priest forever on behalf of his people according to that order. We thank you, our Father, for all that this reminds us of. Encourage and strengthen our faith, we pray. And use this means now, the Lord's table, as we come to it, remembering the suffering of our Savior and his once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. Encourage and strengthen and build up our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.